what kind of savior Jesus was going to be. And they discovered that in about seven days on Easter Sunday. Well, you know, last week I celebrated another birthday. And at this point in my life, birthdays aren't really that special anymore. <laughs> it just means another year has passed. I'm another year older. But I, I appreciate everybody who, who wished me a happy birthday and sent me emails or telephone call, text messages, or, or even on our infamous Facebook uh, birthday wishes. So, you know, even though I get older, I'm always still amazed at some of the things that happen in my life. It's like, you know, you think you had seen everything, but I haven't. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Andrew and uh, Lester, our youth director, and, and I, we had a chance to go down to Southern California, to, to Los Angeles, to an Asian American leadership conference. So it was a great time. We had great teaching, great time of worship, and, and, and just an opportunity to network with a lot of old friends and some new friends that we may have met down at this conference. And one of the sessions, one of the speakers was telling us about the importance of leaders knowing their own strengths and their own weaknesses. It's the ability to be self-aware because if you're aware of who you are, then you can be better uh, in fruitfulness in your ministry. And so one of the things that I've become aware of myself that others have told me, which kind of surprised me, but it's always good to know some of your blind spots, is that some have told me that they perceive me, when the first time they meet me, that I'm scary. So I pose this question to you. How could this face be scary? Now, if you're going to be encouraging and loving to me, all of you will kind of deny that, right? Okay, so I'm not scary. But with that, with that understanding of this, this perception that people have, I have to proactively kind of soften that perception of being scary. So often I'll try to smile more, uh, be more uh, attentive to people. So this is all to set up an incident that kind of happened to us when we were down in Southern California. On the last day of our, our conference, we were leaving the parking lot in our car. Lester was driving, Andrew was in the back seat, I was in shotgun on the, on the passenger side in the front. And so as we're leaving the parking lot, uh, we're at a Korean American church. So there's a car in front of us and, and they're leaving the parking lot before us but their trunk is popping up and down. So they didn't realize that, and they're exiting, and soon we're going to be jumping on the freeway. So as Good Samaritans, we, we decided we better tell them that their trunk is popping up and down, that it's open. So when we come right next to them at a stoplight, I'm on the passenger side, so I roll down my window, and I turn and look to see who's in the car as, alongside us. And there happened to be two elderly Korean-American women. And so, you know, this is a strange town. Strangers are driving up next to them. And so with this perception in my mind that I could be scary, I decide I'll smile and I'll wave to get their attention. So as we pull along the side, I roll down the window, I smile and, and wave at them. And then these two elderly Korean women look at me and they start giggling. <laughs> And then I begin to panic because I think they think I'm hitting on them. 
So I quickly say, I uh, think, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, and quickly, frantically point to the back of the trunk that their door is open and, and they finally got it. So what I'm getting at here is in this story, these Korean women is kind of a metaphor or a or a parable for us that a lot of times we're driving along in life and we don't realize there's something wrong going on with us. Sometimes we just live blindly that we are broken and that there is something that's not that's gone awry in us. And this is where wisdom helps us to see these kinds of things. Because wisdom is having an understanding of what is true, what is right, and what is lasting. And having wisdom is a good thing. And I'm going to make the proposal that better than human wisdom is the wisdom of God. But many of us feel we know better than God, that we want to do it on our own efforts, that our wisdom is the best wisdom. And so my question for all of us, Regardless if you believe there is a God or, don't, and, or do you believe that there is a God, can you trust God's wisdom today for yourself? There's this quote from Charles Riley, Riley who's a seminary professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he defines wisdom as this. The wisdom of God tells us that God will bring about the best possible results by the best possible means for the most possible people for the longest possible time. Again, the wisdom of God tells us that God will bring about the best possible results by the best possible means for the most possible people for the longest possible time. So before we can trust God's wisdom, we have to be able to see God's wisdom for ourselves. You can't trust what you can't see. So where can we see God's wisdom? And there's a few places that... I'm going to tell you that you can see God's wisdom. And the first place we can see it, obviously, is in his creation. And that's one of the fortunate things that when we live in California, we've been really blessed by some of the amazing nature spots that we can go to. You know, just within a few hours, we can drive up to, to Tahoe. And we can see one of the jewels of the world in Lake Tahoe. Or just a couple hours, we can drive to the coast and see see Monterey Bay and see the amazing ocean life that's out there. Or head east into the Central Valley and go to a place that, where I, I love to go camping, and that's Yosemite National Park, and see the amazing rock formations that we have right here in our midst. And besides that, if we just think about how our universe is constructed, that... that how the earth spins, the speed it spins, the tilt it has, it all has to go at a precise way so that it could sustain life here on earth. Psalm 104, 104 verse 24 declares this fact. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And you know, without doubt, the most amazing creation that God has made is mankind. It still amazes me when, when as a dentist, I, I cut into somebody. I'm going to make an incision and drain an infection that it heals. 
that the body knows how to heal. It's not what I do. I mean, I did something mechanical. But the body, as God created, heals itself. The same thing happens when I extract the tooth. And that hole that I created closes on itself. And I don't know, maybe I'm weird, but that's, that's really amazing to me to see the body be able to do that. The wisdom of God can also be seen in his word. You know, the book that we call the Bible is God's, basically God's manual for life. It's his instructions for how we are to live and how we are to treat one another. And it's a book that, that we're supposed to regularly get our feeding from. And so that's my question. If we really truly want to know God's wisdom and truly want to see God's wisdom, are we regularly reading his word? Are we delving into to his, his instructions for how he wants us to live? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 19, the Apostle Paul, he warns us about the foolishness of, of the world's wisdom. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And in Ephesians 1, verse 17, Paul gives this prayer for the church of, at Ephesus. And it should be a prayer for us. He prays for us to receive wisdom so that we may know God. To be able to know God, we need wisdom. But it's not our wisdom, but it's the wisdom that comes from God himself. Paul writes, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And James 1.5 tells us a very practical thing. If we want wisdom, we just have to ask for it. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without fault, and it will be given to him. So again, if God's wisdom can be seen in the Bible, are we taking time to actually go look in the Bible? And that is something that I challenge us, to regularly study. And if you're like myself, I know I'm not perfect. Every day I may not pick up the Bible to read. And sometimes, a lot of times, as pastors, as we get busy, oftentimes the only time we look into the Bible is when we're preparing for a message. And that's sometimes a sad truth, but it's also a reminder that we, as a people in general, sometimes forget to look into the Bible. The wisdom of God can be seen in what we call divine providence. Now that's, I know, a pretty kind of mysterious kind of words, divine providence. Divine means of God or being godly. And then providence is defined as um, guardianship, as foresight. It's about care in advance. So you put the two together. Divine providence means God's guardianship or God's care. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So according to divine providence is that it requires kind of a 20-20 hindsight to understand this. It means that under all circumstances, whether they're good or bad, we don't know exactly why things happen, but only God does. And it's his divine providence that in the end that it it is for a good purpose 
Now that's a hard concept, but I said to, to really appreciate and understand, and especially to trust in, if we're not, you know, feeling the blessings of God, if we're kind of struggling and going through hard time. So that's a hard thing to understand, and, and I'm not uh, naive to say that all of us will be able to understand that. But that's where God's wisdom, through maybe being seasoned and mature, you may begin to be able to understand that. Uh, Chip Ingram, who's an author, wrote uh, this kind of analogy about trying to understand God's wisdom in, in that light. And one of his books, he, he gives this, this story about a train operator. And he goes to work, he operates switching tracks. And, and on this particular day, his five-year-old son, who they live very close to where he works, decides to come to work with him. And, and he comes running out and plays along the tracks, and he gets his foot stuck by accident in the tracks. And in the distance, the train operator or the train switch operator can hear a fast-moving train coming down the tracks on the same track that his son is stuck on. And when the train is fast approaching, this train operator has to, a train switch operator has to figure out what he's going to do. He can switch the tracks uh, so that the train goes off course and collides into a barrier, possibly injuring a lot of people on that train to save his son. Or he decides not to switch the train and save a lot of people on the train and let his own son die. Hard decision, right? So if any of us were given that, it would be pretty difficult to do. The most normal thing a lot of us would think, you know, for the majority, it is best to, to allow the train to stay on the track and allow the five-year-old son to die. But also you can blame a father to want him to save his own son by switching the train and allowing hundreds of people possibly to die on the train. Now, given that circumstance, you wouldn't know what is the right answer. What is the best answer? Because possibly that son could be someone who could save hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even millions, if he was the one who came up with a cure for cancer. Wouldn't that be the right answer then to save him versus just a hundred people on the train? And you wouldn't know that until years and years down the line. And it's that kind of dilemma that we're talking about when we're trying to understand God's wisdom and also about his divine providence. It's an un unavoidable truth that Chippingren mentions in his book. He says, until we grasp what it means that God is all wise, we will never be able to trust and rest in his wise plan for our lives. That's the first step. We have to be able to trust that God is wise. As we're going through the series, we've been going through different attributes of God. We're looking at you know, God's goodness, God's sovereignty, God's holiness, and today God's wisdom. And if we don't truly believe any of those things, then it would be very hard for us to trust God himself and then to be able to trust his plan for us because he does have a plan for each one of us. He does love us, care for us, he created us for a purpose. But if we cannot understand or 
believe that he is truly a wise God, then it will be very difficult for us to trust that his plan for us will be a good one. A few months ago, or actually a couple months ago, during Chinese New Year, a lot of times our families get together for various lunches and, and dinners to celebrate the occasion. And then on one occasion, on this lunch, I was sitting at a table with one of my wife's cousins. And it was kind of interesting conversation we had, uh, something maybe God's been working uh, with me. He, he asked me, uh, what do I do for the church? So I kind of explained certain things that I'm a pastor here. And, and then he says, you know, how, how does the church support itself? And, and I said, it's from the generosity of the people kind of thing. It's, and, and, and so it's kind of a, it was an interesting conversation we had. Then he, he made this uh, kind of provocative statement to me. He said, you know, I'm actually come to a conclusion that there is no God. I'm an atheist. And then I said, oh, okay. You want to talk a little bit more about that? And so he said, religion is for those who need to ask the question why. Those who are needy and hurting ask that question. And this applies to all religions. People seek comfort, compassion, and answers to the why from religion. So for myself, I've decided that I don't need to ask the question why anymore. So that was... You know, a stunning statement I heard that, that those of us who are spiritually oriented are, are always asking questions like why and needing an answer. And uh, my wife's cousin was saying, that is for weak people, people who are searching for an answer. And he said, I don't need to look anymore. I don't need to ask that question. So... So here I am facing this question and being in this conversation. I didn't want to end it there. And there's kind of this uh, competitiveness in me that if he stated that, what can I counter with? And, and um, so the best thing I could come up with was when he said all religions are the same, essentially. I went, to, I went that as my attack. And I said, you know, Christianity is kind of different from, from other religions. And, you know, a lot of religions are work-based that you're constantly trying to do good deeds to, to reach perfection. And it's through your good deeds that you reach this heavenly nirvana or whatever. But Christianity isn't, isn't about me. It isn't about what I do. It's all done. It's done by Jesus Christ on the cross. So what he has done brings perfection to me versus my own striving for perfection. And then I thought, oh, okay, that was... That should have been a good response to. <laughs> and then he, he kind of had a twinkle on his eye and he looked at me and he said, there is one thing you need to do though. And he, he said, you have to believe. And I said, you're right. You do believe, have to believe that there is a God and that it, the Son of God is Jesus. And so that's my question for a lot of us today. Is that, do we truly believe there is a God? And even though a lot of us are here in this building, which we call church, sometimes we live our lives in a way that we don't really believe that there is a God and that Jesus is his son. Many of us, including myself, go about our daily lives not realizing the power that we have, that we can have from God. 
We act more like defeated people than people who have been given victory. And with this kind of attitude, it's really hard to trust that God has a wise plan for us. When we were at the uh, leadership conference, one of the speakers uh, was uh, James Chong. He's the National Asian American uh, Director of, of the Asian American Ministries for InterVarsity. He's also author of a couple of books. He's a great speaker. He's also a pastor of a small startup church down in Southern California. Well, he shared some insights in the story about Gideon. And uh, I wanted to share some of those insights because Gideon uh, was an Israelite who, who lived his life as a defeated man. But God had to intervene, intervene in his life because he had a very wise plan for Gideon and a purpose that would help build the kingdom. And so often in our own lives, we act just like Gideon. And so if you want to follow along, I want to read from Judges 6, verses 11 through 16. And this is the story of, of Gideon. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in, in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in her winepress to keep it from the Midianites. If we read the, that scripture really quickly, we might miss an observation here. Do you see something kind of odd here of what Gideon's doing? He's threshing wheat, right? But he's threshing wheat in a wine press. So in, in the biblical times, a wine press is kind of like a pit in the ground. It's a hole in the ground. It's a small, limited area. But that's not how you usually thresh wheat. I think I have a picture of, of how rice or wheat or any grain is usually threshed. Uh, my wife was in China, and it's kind of weird. You go out and you can see on just any flat surface, there, they've got rice being dried out and being threshed and separated uh, because they just need a lot of area. So you just find it on volleyball courts, you find it on uh, uh, parking lots, just middle of the road. But that's how they thresh their, their, their grain. So threshing grain is that, you know, there's husk on grain. And so you've got to separate the husk from the actual grain itself. And then a lot of times you just toss it in the air and then the chafe, the, the, the husky part kind of floats away and then the heavier grain falls to the ground. So that's what it means to thresh. So here in the story, Gideon is doing it in a pit, a wine press. So he's not really doing it on large surface with this flat, exposed land. He's doing it in a pit. And, and the reason given in the scripture is, is that he wants to keep it away from the Midianites. The nation of Israel right now is under occupation. They've been conquered by the Midianites. And usually conquerors come and they take your, your harvest. So Gideon is trying to save his harvest, his meager wheat grains, from the enemy. And he's doing the threshing in hiding. He's doing it in a pit. So as he's doing this, he's hoping that the Midianites wouldn't see his grain. So essentially, he's living a life that's basically telling everybody, telling us, he's been defeated. He's a scared man in a little hole, threshing his wheat. So let's continue. Verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. 
But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us what about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. So in, in this scripture, uh, Gideon is, is essentially being encouraged by God. But God, or actually Gideon, doesn't get it. His response to, to God's encouragement, God calls him, uh, I'm with you and you are a mighty warrior. Instead, Gideon responds by complaining. He starts criticizing God. He talks about uh, his sorry state. He's kind of the person that says, you know, the glass is half full, not, or, or it's half empty versus half full. He's kind of a pessimist, not an optimist. He sees only fault, especially his own fault. And he, he's ready to criticize. And that's often the case with many of us. I mean, we actually are honest. A lot of times, often we see uh, God when he's absent versus when he's present. And so my question even on a Sunday like this, when we come on Sundays, do we come with the attitude that God is present here? Or do we come with a perception that God is absent? So how do you see God today and any day? Continuing in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my, in my family. So again, here we see Gideon continuing to, to complain. He's talking about his weaknesses versus his strength. He's, he's telling God, I, my uh, tribe is the weakest. My clan is the weakest. I'm the smallest and the weakest in my family. And he, he forgets what his strength is. And the one thing that he has that nobody else has is God is with him. God said that, I am with you. There is nothing to be worried about. There is nothing to be afraid of. That is your strength. And here, that is often true for many of us too. That a lot of times we just look at our own resources, our own strengths. And sometimes these strengths that we think we have don't match up to other people's strengths. And a reminder here from Gideon is that we should remember that God is with us. And when he is with us, there is nothing that we should be afraid of. So how do you see yourself? What strengths do you have? And what strengths, more importantly, do you have to contribute to the community? So God had a plan for Gideon. And we see this in, in, in verse 16. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Now that's probably shocking to Gideon. Because you've got to realize Gideon is just a farmer. I mean, he's just an agricultural uh, businessman, if anything. And here God is saying, go strike down the Midianites. Gideon has no idea what it means to fight a war or be a soldier. So you could 
not blame Gideon for kind of being freaked out here. But God, that was God's plan. That's God's wise plan for Gideon. And, and anything that God calls us to do, he will provide the resources or his presence to help us in doing that, no matter how insurmountable that may seem. And God had already done this earlier in the passage when essentially God gave Gideon a new name. He was a farmer, but God called him mighty warrior. And essentially, God is giving him a new purpose. I have a photo that is one of my from one of my favorite rides at Disneyland. It's uh, Indiana Jones. And as you exit that ride, there's this sign near the end, and it says, reward uh, awaits those who choose wisely. And, and it's apropos here, it's a question for all of us to be able to choose wisely. Because if we choose to be reborn, if we choose to follow God and seek after Him, if we choose to follow Jesus Christ, God doesn't just make us better. He doesn't just improve us. He actually makes us new people. It's kind of subtle. He doesn't just improve us. He doesn't make us better. We actually die and are resurrected into being new people. And if God has given us a purpose in his wise plan, he's given us new names. Just like Gideon received a new name. Just like Simon was given the name Peter to be the rock of the church. Just as Saul was given the name Paul. Now, I, I appreciate coming from a culture that, that a lot of us belong to that names do matter and I don't know if you folks if some of you have uh, ethnic names uh, my brother and I uh, in our family tradition our grandfather gave us our names and so so mine in translation means great citizen or great scholar my brother is the great hero so in some ways they can uh, in our culture be prophetic of our futures and so in the same tradition my father named my kids so my son's name means uh, uh, great great light and uh, my daughter her name is great harmony and so they have a spiritual nature to them because the great light is it means just like when God said let there be light in the creation story is that kind of light and then uh, my daughter when it's great harmony or great peace it's the same as the Hebrew word shalom which means peace or wholeness and so when you have those kind of names you kind of appreciate um, a future that may be hopeful and it has a purpose in the same way God gives each one of us a new name if we follow him. And unfortunately, good or bad, names can influence us. They have an impact on us. And for some of us, we have gone through life with certain names that have been thrown at us and unfortunately have stuck onto us. 
some of us have names that we walk around with that we are not proud of. Names that others have given to us. Maybe it's like not good enough. Maybe it's failure. Maybe it's unappreciated. Maybe it's troublemaker. These are hurtful names. These are words that, that are hard to get rid of. But it's my challenge today. And may the love of God help you to remove those names and bring on names that he actually wants to call you. And maybe those names are like beloved, royal priest, saved, and maybe most importantly, son or daughter of the Most High. Now today is, is Palm Sunday, as I mentioned. And, and when Jesus came in, um, many in the crowd were thinking that Jesus was like a victorious general that he was going to rescue them from the uh, oppressors, the Roman oppressors. And that was the world's kind of wisdom, of that kind of victory uh, parade. But God had a different kind of plan, that in a week's time, the people will realize that God's wisdom was going to be revealed in the cross. On a black day in the Middle East, there in Jerusalem, a man died for people in those days and for days to come. No one expected it to look like that. It was ugly. It was shameful. It was something that, however, represented life. It represented peace. And ultimately, it represented victory. Everything that we would ever want in life comes from the cross. Anything we would want to seek about God, the first thing we must do is look at the cross. And that symbol of the cross, no matter how shameful and ugly it is, is a representation of God's wisdom and wise plan for mankind. And it is freely given to all those who choose wisely. As part of our reflection time during this series, we've been printing out these uh, reflection cards. For this week, you'll see the, the quote from Charles Riley about the wisdom of God. But below it, there's a verse, Romans 11:33 through 36. And that's the theme verse for this week about God's wisdom. And the question, closing question I have is, for all of us to, to, to wrestle with this week is to ask yourself, can I trust God's wisdom today? And, and for this moment, if you would uh, uh, follow, follow my instructions, I'm going to close this time with the reading of Romans 11, 33 through 36. And maybe you can do this by closing your eyes and just hear these words from the Apostle Paul. Romans 11, verse 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, 
Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Until we grasp what it means that God is all wise, we will never be able to trust and rest in his wise plan for our lives. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I ask that you make your presence known to all that who seek earnestly after you. It's only when we can see you that we will be able then to understand your wisdom that you have for our lives. May we learn to trust you, to know that you will seek only good for us in spite of the circumstances that we struggle with each day. So Lord, as we enter into Holy Week, may each one of us continue to look at the cross, which is ugly and shameful, but there is a beauty and hope that comes because your son who died for us on that cross was resurrected so that we may have life eternal. May we continue to embrace that and trust that you have only good things for us. So we thank you in your most precious son's name. Amen.